When I was a kid, there was a good stretch of time where football was my favorite sport in the entire world. Nowadays, most people, most of my friends at least know me as a basketball guy. Basketball is my favorite sport. But as a kid, there was a good stretch where it was football. When I was in middle school, even though I was about four foot six inches on a good day, I was convinced that I was the next NFL superstar. I mean, after all, how could you see this face and not instantly think that's the next face of the NFL? <laughs> you can put that down. I don't. That's enough of that up there. Uh, but in middle school, I broke my arm, and I still loved football, but. You know, I would never admit it at the time. I was a little afraid of the contact after that, and so it waned a little bit. And when I went to high school, I was introduced to the concept of two-a-days. If you're unfamiliar with what two-a-days are, the meaning is pretty self-explanatory. For a couple weeks, typically in the heat of August, typically uh, two to three weeks, it's two practices a day, and they're pretty much all conditioning. They're pretty brutal, and they're usually terrible. Mix that with the disillusionment of a, a you know, top of the food chain, an elementary eighth grader, going to being the shortest person on the football team, uh, with most people being a foot, foot and a half taller and about twice the size of you. Mix that with the fact that football tends to bring out a more aggressive side of people, at least on the field. And that wasn't quite my personality. And it led to a lot of disillusionment for a scrawny ninth grader who previously thought he was all that and a bag of chips. <laughs> it was a pretty discouraging year uh, in ninth grade football. I didn't get to play much. And when I did, because I was so small, I got my bell rocked a few times. And uh, I remember I got one kind of chance to shine. I got one chance where we ran a play specifically for me, and I dropped it. I was like, that was my chance to shine, and I dropped it. And so when 10th grade came around the next year, I decided that, you know what, I just didn't love football enough anymore to go play for this school. I'd still play pickup. I still enjoyed watching the Vikings lose, but uh, I mean, I enjoy more watching them win, but that doesn't happen very much. But I was done. So even though my parents, my friends, and my coach tried to talk me out of it, I quit. And as, uh, as I would go through high school, I would get taller, faster, stronger. I would grow to regret at least a little bit uh, that I didn't stick it out and play all the way through. And it's not like it's something that keeps me up at night and haunts me every day. But I watched my friends from the sidelines as they you know, made more memories together and those relationships got closer and I didn't get to be a part of those memories because of my own decision. And watched the fun they had with the town and the school watching them and thought, if I only would have stuck it out through the two-a-days for 10th grade and 11th grade, I would have got to have the fun and the glory of a senior season. Because I wasn't willing to be the scrub, I didn't get to be the star. A similar set of circumstances took place a couple years after that. I remember my senior year of basketball, coming home from the first couple days of practice, so frustrated, so upset with my coach that I was ready to quit. I remember I, I, I brought my practice jersey home, I washed it all by myself, didn't even turn it pink. It was blue, so that would have been pretty impressive, really. But I had my plan. I was going to go in the next day. It was going to be folded pristinely so that, you know, he couldn't say anything about, like, wash your jersey, you know. I'd put it on the desk, and I'd be like, I'm out. And, you know, in my prideful little head, I was like, that's going to show him. You know, if the captain of the team quits, that'll really show them. I think I'd been watching too much NBA. thought I could, like, negotiate my free agent contract or whatever. Um, but through God's grace, my parents knocked enough sense into me 
to convince me to wait until the end of the week to make my decision. And even though I didn't really want to, I had pretty much made up my mind, uh, I decided I'd honor them in that. And in that week, uh, I prayed about it. I talked more with them. I talked with uh, a couple of my uncles. I talked with, I believe, my grandparents. And through kind of their, their words, I realized that uh, I probably wouldn't regret playing this season. Even if I hated it the whole time and it was miserable and I was mad at everybody, I probably wouldn't regret sacrificing a few hours of free time a day for four to five months. But on the other hand, it's possible that a year, two, three, five, ten years down the road, I would really regret not giving it a chance, not sticking it out, not finishing what I had started. I would go on to have a good season. I played well on the courts. I had fun with my friends and my teammates, and I made a lot of memories that I'm sure I'll remember for the rest of my life. And I'm extremely grateful that my parents knocked that sense into me, and I'm extremely grateful that I was able to stick it out because I, because I endured the hardship, I was able to receive that blessing uh, afterwards. And so the question that I want to ask you is this. How far are you willing to go in pursuit of what you love? Today we're continuing our series on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and we're picking up with the letter written to the church in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was about 35 miles north of Ephesus, which you might recognize from last week or from the book Ephesians. And it was one of the greatest cities in the Roman Empire. Even before Rome came to, to power, uh, Smyrna aligned with Rome politically. Yes, thank you for putting that up there. Um, and uh, as a result, enjoyed a favored status in that Roman Empire. They're actually still the, the, the only city of these seven churches in Revelation that's still standing today, though it does have a different name. They won a competition among 12 cities to build the first temple in honor of Emperor Tiberius, which is important to know because that paved the way for Smyrna to become the center or a center of Caesar worship. As you can see, it was a large city with a Mediterranean harbor. That benefited them as well. It was known for its beauty and its wealth. But for Christians in this city, life isn't quite as glamorous. Life isn't quite as luxurious. We pick up in Revelation 2, 8 and 9 and read, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. If this is a city known for its wealth, known for its beauty, why does Jesus say that he understands their poverty? Why does he say that he understands their afflictions? Well, as I mentioned briefly, in the city of Smyrna, emperor worship became mandatory for every Roman citizen under threat of death. Once a year, you would have to burn incense and declare that Caesar is Lord. And if you, didn't do, or if you did that, rather, um, you were given a certificate. And anybody found without the certificate risked execution. It was more political than it was religious and spiritual in most instances. But nonetheless, Christians refused to do this because to them, Jesus is their only Lord. So as a result, they faced persecution, they faced suffering, they risked death. Uh, every day they risked their lives, they lost out on uh, different opportunities, and because of this they were found poor. 
Um, the other thing to note is that it says, those who say they are Jews and are not. That's not referring to people who are mistaken about you know, their heritage and their, their, uh, their line that they come from, but what that means is that uh, the Jewish uh, synagogue in Smyrna specifically aligned with Rome as well and had kind of a, a truce, and so they were actually exempt from that Caesar worship, uh, but they persecuted Christians even strong, more strongly than the Romans did. And so um, when Jesus says that, it's not that they are not by heritage Jewish, it's that they have rejected their long-awaited Messiah and persecuted those who have given their lives to follow him. So in Revelation 10 and 11, as we pick up, it says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear that what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus encourages the believers in Smyrna, warning them of what's about to come and reminding of them not to be afraid. Easy for Jesus to say, right? He's divine. But for us, it's a lot more scary. I mean, we get scared at movies, yet alone facing persecution for our faith, for the very core of our beliefs. The book of James goes as far as to say that we should take joy in our trials. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly find trials joyful. I've never broken down on the side of 35W and thought, you know what, this is awesome. I've never, uh, I've never heard about a friend struggling with a hard time, whether it's sin or whether it's uh, you know, family or, or something else, and thought, man, this is fun. I mean, this is great. Trials aren't supposed to be joyful, so why are we told to take joy in our trials? Well, the second half of that verse says that the testing of faith develops perseverance. If our faith isn't tested, how do we know that it's genuine? Like I said earlier, I broke my arm in seventh grade, and so obviously I had to go to the doctor who had to assess what the damage was and come up with a plan of action. And I can tell you that I sure as heck hope that that man was tested in his knowledge, in his medical knowledge. I hope that he had a lot, dozens if not hundreds of meticulous, monotonous tests. I don't care if he hated them or not. I hope that he passed them with flying colors and that he knows his stuff. In the same way, our faith, when tested, produces perseverance and shows that it is genuine. Jesus instructs in Revelation them to remain faithful even to the point of death. This message became real in 155 AD when a Christian by the name of Polycarp was arrested and put on trial for his faith. They demanded, the council did right there, that he renounce his faith in Christ and that he declare that Caesar is Lord. His answer, for 86 years I have served Christ and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was executed uh, as a martyr for his faith in Jesus. The charge I have for you today is not a new one. It's not really even a complicated one, but it is a challenging one. Would you remain faithful to Christ even to the point of death?
Maybe a better way to phrase that is, will you remain faithful to Christ, even to the point of death? I don't know about you, but I often read scriptures like this, or I hear about uh, uh, stories of martyrs who gloriously died for their faith, and I love to boastfully proclaim that that would be me. Gun to my head, I would say, nope, I won't deny Jesus. And I hope that that's true, but then what about those situations where we're at, I don't know, the grocery store, and you, you feel the Holy Spirit, that voice in your head, or that feeling kind of in your chest saying, Go to the person next to you and show them Jesus' love. Tell them about Jesus. Go the extra mile. Walk their, their groceries out to their car for them. They need a little bit of Christ's love right now. And we justify not doing it. We find every reason to. Well, it's not socially appropriate. Well, it's, it's, uh, they're going to be offended by it. It's going to be weird. I'm going to look like I just want the glory. And we, we find these reasons to justify not doing it. If, if God can't trust us to be faithful in the little things... How is he going to trust us to be faithful in the big things? Here's the reality. Most, if not all of us, won't need to die for our faith. I don't know what the future holds for any of us individually, but at least right now we live in a country where legally we are not going to be executed for our faith. But that's not to say that there won't be any suffering that there won't be any embarrassment, that there won't be any uh, persecution, maybe in lesser forms. And, and, and obviously, I can't even promise that you, you won't have to give up your life for your faith. But what about when our faith in Jesus requires us to turn down a job that we know isn't for us? What about when our faith in Jesus alienates us from our friends? What about when your faith in Jesus requires you to turn down a lump sum of money that could really, really help your family get through the month. But it came from an immoral source, and and you know that with a clean conscience, you can't take it. What about when your faith in Jesus requires you to risk your public reputation? Will you have the discipline and the courage to stay faithful in the midst of persecution and suffering? As I close, I want to go back to verse 11 and highlight something that I didn't talk about at first. It says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. There is a physical but temporary life and death that we have here. There's a much more severe and a much more permanent spiritual death that happens when we're separated from God, a life lived without Jesus. As the scripture suggests, I think it is well worth it to give up our temporary life in pursuit of our eternal life. Paul says in Romans 8 that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I'd argue this is something that Polycarp understood and put into practice, lived for it and died for it, and now is reaping the rewards of his faithfulness for eternity with Jesus. I'd like to end with verse 10 and the charge that's in verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as the victor's crown. Let's pray. Dear Lord, We know that this life that you have called us to 
is not the easy road. It doesn't make our lives easier. You've never promised that. In fact, oftentimes it makes it more challenging. We're grateful to be in a place where we don't have to wonder every day if we're going to die for our faith. But nonetheless, that there are challenges, that there are trials that we will face that will test our faith. I pray that we would remain faithful no matter the circumstances, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging that we would go through the two days in pursuit of your glory. Pray these things in your name. Amen.